Coming up on Tech Nation, how natural disasters have shaped civilizations. Former USGS scientist Dr. Lucy Jones joins me to talk about the big ones. Then on Tech Nation Health, treating any number of conditions with a person's own cells. Nita Shelson of Canaan Partners explains the challenges of CAR-T therapy in treating cancer patients. And Baricel's Gerard Michel describes their work repairing cartilage in the knee and severe burns. Wrapping up, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft covers the Blue Button Conference. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Sometimes science doesn't prove much of anything, except that life is not all about us, as in we humans. 500 years ago, the likes of Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo Galilei, Johannes Kepler, and even Tycho Brahe, who had no telescope, were all convinced that the Earth revolved around the sun. In fact, it was not even a new notion. In 300 B.C., the Greek astronomer Aristarchus of Samos suggested the very same idea and was basically ignored. The date being 300 years B.C., that is, before Christ, the Catholic Church had not yet been founded and couldn't register an objection. But let's not put aside the Church's objections so lightly. I always got the feeling that the resistance boiled down to a human trait, not a religious one. Man is at the center of everything, right? Look around. Humans always think that they're at the center of everything. Then sometimes science comes along and shatters that perception. And it's the shattering of human perception that's the problem, not the truth about the world that so many believe God created. Science often advances when perceptions are abandoned, and this was most recently experienced by three graduate students at Caltech, friends in fact, when one began to notice that the jellyfish he was tending in the lab, for one reason or another, well it looked to him that the jellyfish were sleeping at night and waking up in the morning, so to speak. No way, says science. Jellyfish don't have brains. They don't have a central nervous system. They don't sleep. Brains need sleep for proper functioning. In humans, it's to knit together the traumas of the day, the stresses and the overloads, new facts and everything else, so you can start afresh in the morning. Now, please do note that my saying that science actually says something out loud is just a turn of phrase. There is no ghostly visage of science interrupting the conversation of graduate students. But the great body of science does say that you need at least a nervous system to sleep. Well, if there was one thing Caltech has been teaching these students, it was how to do science. So they thought they would check it out. The journal Current Biology has just published their findings. To my delight, 
Never before have I seen three graduate students, one, two, three, the lead three authors on a paper. That's true recognition. They thought up the test, they conducted the research, and they published the findings while remaining appropriately scientifically cautious. The title reads, The Jellyfish Cassiopeia Exhibits a Sleep-Like State. Very scientific. Maybe it's not sleep. Maybe it's just sleep-like. Words must not befuddle accuracy in science. Still, it reminds me of several family conversations over the years. You woke me up. No, I didn't. You weren't asleep. Yes, I was. As the interchange devolves, we now have the option of throwing in, I was in a sleep-like state. Reading the article further produces other useful terms, including nighttime quiescence, an excellent alternative to sleep-like state, which occurs after dark. And feelings of empathy emerge when we learn the poor jellyfish are sluggish and unresponsive in the morning if they've been woken up every 20 minutes with enthusiastic spurts of water. However science ultimately settles the question of what is and is not sleep, these students allowed themselves to think that jellyfish could do what they weren't supposed to do. And that's how breakthrough science happens. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, significant natural disasters and how we humans have responded throughout history. Dr. Lucy Jones talks about the big ones, how natural disasters have shaped us. Then on Tech Nation Health, using a person's own cells to treat a number of conditions. We hear from Nina Shelson from Canaan Partners about the cancer therapy CAR-T and Gerard Michel from Vericell about repairing cartilage in the knee and severe burns. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft wraps up with the Blue Button Conference. If you live in San Francisco, you might say, Los Angeles is a whole other world, rather than being just another major city on the west coast of the United States. But geophysically speaking, those San Franciscans are right. Dr. Lucy Jones is the author of The Big Ones. Yeah, that's right. We are completely different tectonic plates. And it's funny, San Francisco, which is farther west, is on the North American plate, and Los Angeles to the east is actually on the Pacific plate, and we are moving past each other. And in something like five million years, San Francisco will be a suburb of Los Angeles, or vice or versa, vice depending on how you want to think Watch about it. your tongue, woman. <laughs> You're in San Francisco <laughs> now. Now, those plates are big plates. Yeah, the North American plate extends from the San Andreas Fault all the way to Iceland, all of North America through halfway through the Atlantic. And then the Pacific plate uh, extends out to Japan and the Philippines and, and uh, uh, even down towards New Zealand. So uh, the Pacific plate's the largest of the Earth's plates. They're moving gradually 
uh, geologically, it seems quite rapid. To human beings, it's about the same rate as your fingernails grow. No wonder we have earthquakes. Exactly. We are on the boundary. They move past each other. It sticks here. Eventually, it slips. Now, your book is about the big ones, and that's not just earthquakes. There's tsunamis. There's hurricanes. The San Francisco earthquake, the great earthquake of 1906, doesn't make the the list of big ones. You know, the uh, Loma Prieta, everyone was watching the start of one of the World Series baseball games, doesn't even make the list. What is a big one? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Loma Prieta is a small one. It was up in the mountains, and yes, it caused problems in San Francisco. It didn't disrupt society at a fundamental level. 1906 might have been able to make the list, but in fact, it is not the most catastrophic disaster in California history. That's the flood of 1861-62. That killed 1% of the state's population. It destroyed one-third of the taxable land. It bankrupted the state. It eliminated the ranching industry. Over 200,000 head of cattle were drowned in the flood, and they couldn't afford to restock the herds. So that's when California switched from being a ranching economy to a farming economy. So I ended up talking about the big ones as the ones that fundamentally change the nature of society. Um, I start with Pompeii, where the whole city ceases to exist, or the Lockheed eruption in Iceland that brought the country to the edge of extinction. Now, you, of course, had a long career with the U.S. Geological Survey, and part of what you did there was you led a team to model what would happen to Los Angeles. Right. So taking all we know about all these disasters, what does it mean for us? I mean, we talk about the big earthquake coming, and we don't see, we, we didn't get traction. The big people, <laughs> people ignored us. Everybody asks about the big ones. We say, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, it's inevitable. And, and it wasn't turning into action. So I said, okay, just saying given probabilities isn't getting people to make decisions. Let's tell them what they're really dealing with. And we assembled a team. We had over 300 experts that worked together. We called it the shakeout scenario. The shakeout drill, if you have participated in that, uh, began as a one-time event to get people to understand what was in our scenario. And then, of course, it, we got 5 million people to participate in the first drill. That's a quarter of the population of Southern California. Then the state wanted to pick it up. We had 53 million people around the world last year. But back to the scenario, we we didn't just say, here's what the earth does. We said, here's what the earth does. Here's how the shaking comes out. Here's what that does to buildings and infrastructure and all of these engineered systems. And then what happens in public health? What happens in um, the, the economic future? And what you see is you're probably going to live through it. You know, even in Pompeii, 90% of the victims lived. They escaped before the, the pyroclastic flow came through. But you've got like, you know, 99.99% of Southern Californians will live, but we will do such damage to the economy that people are going to be struggling to stay there. You know, one of the pieces of information I found when I was doing research, the only time Los Angeles has lost population was in 1971 and 72 and in 1994 and 95, which are the two years after our biggest earthquakes. People were so scared by them, they didn't want to be there, they gave up and left. The biggest growth decade in the history of Los Angeles is the decade after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco as people gave up on San Francisco and moved south. So that idea, you live through it, but you might say, I don't want to live here anymore. 
Well, you're talking modern buildings, and you write, our building codes do not require developers to make buildings that can be used after a major earthquake, only buildings that don't kill you. And Americans don't like government telling them what to do. So we've said if you choose to build a building that's so weak that it's a total financial loss after the earthquake, that's your personal economic choice to make. You just can't kill people in the process. And so as we developed building codes, people were you know, quite restrictive about what they thought government should be able to tell us to do. And that's actually, I think, where one of the biggest problems are. We have done such a good job. You are going to probably live through the earthquake, at least if you're in a new building. But you may lo- very likely lose your investment. You know, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand had a big earthquake in, in 2011. I thought I almost made that one of my chapters, but I didn't. And it, it was only a 6.3, but it was right in the city. And that was what we call the design earthquake, the biggest earthquake that the, the building code says you need to design for. So they have their design earthquake. We haven't had them here in L.A. or San Francisco yet. And the building code did what it was supposed to. Nobody died in a modern building. But when the dust settled, they ended up tearing down 1,800 new buildings because they were so badly damaged. That was the most cost-effective thing to do. And they lost their downtown. For five years, every building in downtown, whether it was okay or not, was banned from use because there were enough dangerous buildings. It was too dangerous to be there. So the economic consequences have been huge. And they're getting through it because they have 95% insurance coverage. Here in California, it's more like 10% of our buildings are insured. And I really wonder how we're going to economically make our way through this. And by insured, you're saying specifically insured for earthquake because I know it says, oh, this doesn't cover earthquake. The standard policies don't. And our mortgage companies have not required us to do this. I mean, most people get fire insurance at the beginning because they, they can't get a mortgage without it. And But most of us think about it and go, okay, I'm going to keep this even after my mortgage is, is paid off. But without the mortgage companies requiring that for earthquakes, we haven't done it. And I don't understand that choice uh, because the mortgage holders are then going to be the ones sitting holding the bag as these buildings are destroyed and people walk away and give up. And again, the economic consequences just start seeming so large. I did ask one bank about this that I had the opportunity to talk with some senior people. Why are you taking this risk? And they said, well, we know the system's really messed up, but if we go and demand earthquake insurance, we just won't write the mortgage. The people will go to somebody else who isn't asking it of them. And we can't make that change alone. You ask again and again, why are they building there? Why are they living there? Take Pompeii. Mount Vesuvius had not erupted for 600 years. What could go wrong? And there's this fundamental issue. I mean, I'm a geologist. So I talk about 10,000 years as recent and don't feel any sense of irony in saying that. If it's happened in the last 10,000 years, it will happen again. But of course, most human beings think in shorter time sections. And on a human time scale, these occurrences are random. And that's really affected the way we think about them because we can't stand random. Random scares us. Random we don't know how to protect ourselves from. And we are evolved to, faced with danger, create a pattern where we can find a way to be safe. And if it's fundamentally random, we make the patterns anyway. 
And so we have all sorts of myths about, you know, the timing of disasters. We blame it on God. We blame it on a yin-yang imbalance. We blame it on the victims. We always need to find some way of blaming someone because we can't bear that it's random. Um, and if you if you look at it with a geologist time frame, it's not random. It's inevitable. And so it's it's something about stretching the time helps us manage this better. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Lucy Jones. Dr. Jones holds a Ph.D. in geophysics from MIT and a B.A. in Chinese language and literature from Brown. After a long career as a seismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, she's today a science advisor on risk reduction. Her book is The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. So, your undergraduates, Chinese history and literature, <laughs> your PhDs, geophysics, that's not an obvious leap, Lisa. Uh, well, it's also a bit of a shell game. I was a physics major as an undergraduate, taking Chinese as my language, partly because my grandparents had been missionaries in China, so a lot of family interest. I spent my junior year in Taiwan studying Chinese, came back to finish the physics degree, uh, took my first geology class, got hooked wanted to take structural geology instead of advanced electromagnetics. MIT told me they didn't care what my degree said, and so I took the Chinese degree. Uh, with After a year of you know work overseas, it was pretty easy to do. Lucy gets interested in something, get out of the way. A <laughs> uh, little bit of obsession, you know, spectrum issues. Okay. <laughs> now, you covered some, I'm going to say a dozen roughly, uh, major events that have changed things globally uh, over the years. And, and you mentioned Pompeii, but let's go to, the, to the, the next oldest one, which a lot of people aren't familiar with, but had a, a tremendous impact. And that would be uh, Lisbon in yeah. 1755. Many people are unaware that the biggest disaster in European history is an earthquake. We estimate somewhere between eight and a half and nine, so a very, very large earthquake offshore from Portugal and created a big tsunami. Uh, so it was it was a devastating earthquake. Have you ever thought about it, that Portugal was a major colonial power? You know, they had Brazil and all this, and then they sort of disappear from history. You know, they become a minor country. A lot of it was because of, of this event that destroyed so much of the country. Uh, it also had huge philosophical implications uh, because it happened on the morning of All Saints Day, which in a Catholic country like Portugal is what's called a holy day of obligation. Everybody's required to go to church. And it happened at 940 in the morning at the height of the mass in the, the biggest service of the day. Uh, at the time, Western society just accepted that earthquakes were God's wrath. You know, Psalm 18 says the mountains shook because of God's anger. We have accepted that for a, a very long time. And it, it's actually sort of interesting. Every culture says, well, there's something gods are doing, right? But in the Jewish tradition, they said, no, this is not just capricious gods you got in the way. God's good. God's somebody you can make a covenant with. So if he hits you with a disaster, it must be your fault. And we developed this very large tradition of divine retribution. Well, how do you say this when you have an event that happens in the middle of the church services, collapses all of the churches, kills all the faithful, and basically spares the prostitutes and the wooden brothels up on the hill? So it was a pretty 
significant philosophical conundrum. Uh, Voltaire wrote a very famous poem on the Lisbon disaster that was published a month later saying, you know, how can you believe in a God that would would kill the babes in their mother's arms? Um, Big philosophical debates that went on because of this. Rousseau said, you can't reject God in that way. Clearly, people, you know, we should be naturalists, and it's that mistake of trying to live in cities. And and besides, we don't know what worse fate they were spared. And you've got to wonder what Rousseau thought of cities, that the Lisbon earthquake is the lesser fate. <laughs> so you've got all of this going on, but it's at the time, it's really only the philosophers that got into the debate. To the Catholics, it was obvious they had not been fervent enough in their protection of the true faith. The Protestants said, what more proof do we need that, you know, the Inquisition is the devil's work and God has rejected them. So it's a, it was a big issue in European Western civilization. It's the beginning of the first physical science studies of earthquakes because it's at the beginning of the Great Enlightenment. And it just – to the intellectuals, it's like – I really can't figure out why God did this. And they started looking for physical causes. And if you have been to to Lisbon, you know that it's sort of a half valley that's sort of tucked up against the water so that a tsunami would fill it up like a bowl. And and it did. So the, the tsunami came up the river. The river's like a mile wide at that point. And the descriptions of the tsunami, we have some contemporaneous descriptions of it. It's really quite astonishing. And it clearly swept through the lower part of town, basically destroyed the city. One of the other things that's really interesting about it is the first case of a good uh, central government response. So the prime minister at the time was very much in control. The king was sort of didn't really care about this stuff, even though he had absolute power. There's a story that the prime minister met up with the king after the event and the king is like, what do we do about this divine retribution? And, and uh, the, the prime minister just said, sire, we bury the dead and feed the living, which has got to be the most succinct statement of what an emergency manager does <laughs> that we've ever seen. And he proceeded to carry it off well, gained huge political power because of it, and in fact has so increased his standing he was able to – uh, end the Inquisition and get the Jesuits out of, of Lisbon with only four, within only four years after the event. Well, as I teach at a Jesuit university, <laughs> I'm going to look that one up. <laughs> but, <laughs> you mentioned Iceland. Tell everybody what happened in Iceland. Okay. Uh, Iceland is a very interesting country. It was settled in 874 by 10,000 people escaping the king of Norway. So it was a very isolated country and essentially a volcano. The whole country is the manifestation of the mid-ocean ridge, and it's a, a volcanic setting. In that place, they had developed a culture, uh, and in 1783, an eruption began. Uh, it went on for nine months. It, Nine months of eruption? Eruptions. There's about 10 phases that come through this. So it would go through a – build up. You would have an explosive eruption that got a lot of gases into the air. It would keep on going. The gases would settle down and deposit over the earth. Then it would migrate into a different area and go through the same cycle. Um, most of the lava came out in the first 45 days and uh, covered a substantial portion of the cropland for the country. 
And these gases got deposited and poisoned people. So they were both sulfur-based but also fluorine. The fluorine got into the water and into the, the fodder. Uh, 80% of the animals were poisoned and died. If people ate those animals, they were poisoned and died. Over a quarter of the population died either from direct poisoning or from famine over the next 18 months. And the culture came very close to extinction. Uh, it is the population went back down under 35,000 people, and they were disrupted. They all, most of the cropland had to be abandoned. So they became a nation of refugees with no place to go. But it also had implications around the world because a lot of those gases did get up higher in the atmosphere. They traveled over to Europe. Uh, they'd gone back and done analyses of comparing the deaths uh, that summer compared to other summers and estimate about 23,000 people died in the UK because of the poisonous gases that, that came over from Iceland. Uh, people dying in the fields as they were working on the crops. Actually, the poet Robert Burns uh, collapsed in that summer and had later physical problems that they attribute to this. Uh, it went on through Europe. They've never done a detailed analysis of just how many people died directly from the gases. There were also sulfates in the higher atmosphere up into the stratosphere that cooled the earth. That winter was one of the coldest on record in Europe. There was a famine that came out of it. Um, it got moved around the world, and the, uh, they cooled the continents. It disrupted the monsoon flows, which developed because of the difference in temperature between the continent and, and the and ocean. And the trade all in the, the Indian Ocean depends on the monsoon, you know, so that half the year you can go this way, the other half that, that way. way. And yeah. if that starts to get disrupted, trade is So it's disrupted. It, in Egypt, uh, the Nile didn't flood, and they went into a famine that killed 600,000 people. Uh, in India, uh, there was also a famine that summer uh, that killed 11 million people. Now, it's not completely attributed to the volcano because there may have been an El Nino at the same time. There's another famine in Japan responsible for about a million deaths. So this one eruption is considered the deadliest event in human history, though we can only say it's, it's you know, in the millions. We not, really don't know how much to attribute directly to it. And so many of us have never heard of it before. And most of us never heard of it. Icelanders all know about it. It's a defining event in their culture. Now, in San Francisco, we don't just say it's the 1906 earthquake. We frequently say it's the 1906 earthquake and fire. And throughout so many of your stories in the book, there's a fire. But the reality is whenever you put a really big earthquake in a, major, a significant city, we see fire as a, as a major output of it. When we modeled what would happen from the San Andreas in Southern California, we doubled the losses with the fire. And, you know, as geologists, we read this, and they said, this is extreme. And, in fact, the state geologist was, like, really having trouble agreeing with it. So we assembled a panel of firemen to help us analyze why the consultant we'd hired had come up with this answer. And their conclusion was that, if anything, we'd underestimated the risk. And that the issue is, is that right next to the fault, the shaking is much, much worse than even a little farther away. Which is why the, you know, the Hayward Fault here in the Bay Area potentially is going to be a worse disaster than the one on the San Andreas because the San Andreas is at least a little bit offshore, whereas Hayward runs right through the middle of the East Bay. It's interesting. We tend to think of it as gas lines. 
Uh, but in previous California fires, only about 25% have been caused by gas. 60% are electrical causes. The Kanto earthquake, 1923 Japan, those were cooking fires being knocked over. There's a lot of ways in which you can set off fires. But when you set off too many of them, and you disrupt the transportation and communication from the earthquake and make it difficult to fight those fires, it seems to be an inevitable consequence. I've been speaking with Dr. Lucy Jones, the author of The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, using a person's own cells to treat a number of conditions from cancer to damaged cartilage to severe burns. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with geophysicist Dr. Lucy Jones, the author of The Big Ones How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. So much in this book, including what we could do about it individually and, and as societies. Uh, but I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me is that disasters are more than the moment at which they happen and they don't end because the media stopped covering them. That's right. The recovery is what really determines what we're going to be. And our fear of randomness keeps us focused on that moment. This is like my, my experience of being the seismological voice after earthquakes. There was a point at which I started going, why are you talking to me anyway? I give the earthquake a name or a fault. How does that help you rebuild your house? And in a practical sense, it doesn't. And what I came to understand through this experience was that I was performing the same role as the shaman did. I gave it a name. I gave it a number. I gave it a fault. And I said, somebody understands this, and it's less scary. Because one of the other things that I found is that there's a, there's a bunch of us that do this. A lot of the, all the seismologists are out there after the event. But 
the women were remembered and the men weren't. And it's like, you know, you feel better when mommy tells you it's okay. And somehow we were more reassuring. It was the science, but it was in a comforting tone. And I... You can't explain it, but you can kind of explain it. I can kind of explain it. I watched this, and I realized that when we talked about scientific uncertainty, let's use this opportunity to explain the scientific method, we tended to increase the fear. People were not ready to hear that right after the earthquake. A month later, yes. Right after the earthquake, they wanted certainty. They wanted somebody to say, it was okay, it was understood, it's going to be controlled. And I saw this as our real fear of randomness. And then once you get through that moment, all of the attention disappears. But in fact, what really defines whether or not your city is here later is how you recover from that. And as I looked at all these different disasters, I saw cases like the Lisbon earthquake, where the government handled it extremely well. Whereas if you look at New Orleans, where they really struggled in their response for a, a wide variety of reasons, uh, we are now out, at, you know, 12 years after, 13 years after the hurricane, and the population is still down by one third. And so the consequences go on for a very long time, and it's how you respond and, and how you respond as a community that really controls a lot of what we are. You know, the engineers like to say that uh, systems fail where they're already weak. And it's easy to see that physically, the crevasse in the levee where you already had some damage or the building coming down where it had been poorly constructed or it had been repaired from a fire. But it applies to social systems as well. And we see failure in our social systems where we are already struggling. Lizzie, this has been terrific. I hope you come back and see us again. I hope so, too. My guest today is Dr. Lucy Jones. The book is The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us and What We Can Do About Them. It's published by Doubleday. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. It used to be a distant hope that we could use a person's own cells to treat any number of conditions. That distant hope is becoming reality. First, I speak with Nina Shelson, a general partner at Canaan Partners, who will explain the reality and the challenge of CAR-T therapy and what it means for cancer patients. Then Gerard Michel from Vericell describes their work using a patient's own cells to repair cartilage in the knee and severe burns. We'll wrap up with Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. Have you heard about the Blue Button Conference? And now, Nina Shelson, General Partner at Canaan Partners. Well, Nina, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. A lot of people have heard about CAR-T. Let's explain that. What is it and what does it mean for patients coming up when they start these therapies start to arrive? So what we're trying to aim for with CAR-T is essentially to cure cancer. And to do that by harnessing and engineering the patient's own immune cells to go after proteins that are expressed only on the tumors and not on healthy tissue. Unfortunately, most of the proteins are expressed to some degree on both. Uh, so it's been a real breakthrough in the area of medicine to begin to parse out those that are specific to cancer only. And the way this happens is really quite exciting but also quite complex. A patient is... Um, 
seen in a medical center, and their blood is drawn in order to harness from them their T cells in particular. And those cells are engineered to express only the protein on the tumor to try to amplify or boost the immune response that isn't happening naturally in that patient because cancers are so good at dampening the immune system. So those cells are engineered over many uh, days to weeks, expanded so that you can give a large dose of those cells and reinfuse to the patient in order to have a profound uh, sort of amplified immune response to the cancer. So you take the patient's own T cells, you amplify them, and then you give them all back to the patient. Exactly. And importantly, you also engineer them to express a peptide that's going to be seen by the patient's immune system so that when those cells are infused, it really dials up that immune response. So that protein comes back in, attaches to the cancer cell. You've jacked up the immune system and says, hey, you're not supposed to be here. Exactly. Gets rid of the cancer. Exactly. And what's extraordinary in the few uh, hematologic or blood cancers in children and adults that have been treated so far, have seen remarkable response rates with people living two, three, four, five years post-treatment. So this really is a game-changing therapy. Now, these CAR T cells and CAR T therapies, they're going well beyond blood cancers. They are going well beyond blood cancers. Uh, the challenge is to access uh, the tumor and to get these cells to infiltrate solid tumors is a much more challenging trick, as well as finding targets, we call them, on those tumor cells that are not expressed on healthy tissue so that we can safely administer these immune soldier-like cells in high volume to go after the tumor. So we're in the, in the first innings of commercial experience where patients are actually seeing these blood cancer treatments with CAR-T, uh, but we're still in the clinical stage and research stage for solid tumors. In fact, there are about 500 clinical trials ongoing right now in CAR-T. Some of those are indeed in solid tumor. I can see that about one-fifth of them are still in the same blood cancers with the same target, representing sort of a me-too or me-better strategy, uh, I think an indication of just how much excitement there is in the field, not just for patients but among companies uh, going after these, um, these tumors as well. But we're going to see an awful lot of innovation coming, uh, coming to market in the next three to five years in this field. You know, when we have a pill, a small molecule that we can stamp out again and again, the moment you get approval, you have a registered product for a brand new drug, boy, everything just comes right into play. We can manufacture it around the world. We can just stamp it out. They'll be identical. Easy peasy. Now we're in a different state. You finally get a registered product with CAR-T. You know, here it is, personalized, truly personalized medicine. Every person we have to manufacture this for, this is a whole different situation. It is, it is an unprecedented complexity and requires a totally new coordination. You're absolutely right. Like with small molecules or pills, these are manufactured even before approval in anticipation of launch and sit in inventory and can be sent to all of the physician sites and the pharmacies to be prescribed and dispersed. With these personalized therapies or autologous cell from cell therapies, they are custom tailored for the patient, uh, particularly engineered and reintroduced to that patient. And as you might imagine, that requires coordination at the clinical sites for the physician to identify the right patient for the treatment, to check with their insurance company for preauthorization, to get them scheduled to have that blood drawn or that leukapheresis um, uh, session that harvests the material from which their cell therapy is going to be made, 
complex courier logistics to get that from that medical center site to a centralized manufacturing plant. Multi-hundred million dollar manufacturing plants are being built in order to engineer these cells. And then they go through a fairly extensive multi-step process through various different instruments and assays to grow these cells, to engineer them, to express the right cancer-fighting target, and then to prepare them for an infusion back to the patient. And again, the courier logistics, typically frozen, to get to the site scheduling coordination to get the patient there to receive the cells. They're thawed and infused. And then that patient, importantly, has to be monitored according to the FDA for a lifetime. And in cancer patients, we think that's going to be 5, 10, 15 years to make sure that they're safely receiving this therapy and also getting the anti-cancer results um, that are hoped for. And that needs to be coordinated back to the manufacturing company also to ensure that they get reimbursed and paid for these uh, complex therapies. So they're multi-hundred-thousand-dollar products because these are multi-month, high-labor-intensive, very complex medicines to produce. A totally different uh, infrastructure is required to do that. And we're seeing some opportunities to engineer the information systems that follow a therapy in order to make this dream a real reality for patients. Well, let's break this down a bit. First of all, from the moment you go in and they harvest your cells to start this process to the moment you get the call saying, hey, it's here, let's schedule you to come in, how long is that? Right now, that's two to three months. That's a long time. That's a long time, and that's because there are some very specific scientific steps that have to take place in manufacturing the cells. Harvesting the material, the starting material, and getting it shipped to the manufacturing, that's a day to 18 hours. And the return, similarly, a day to 18 hours. It's the manufacturing to use a virus to knock in the target of interest into the cell and then to grow and expand those cells is a process that takes you know, weeks. And then you also have to watch those cells for safety and make sure that you didn't introduce any toxicity or bacterial or viral contaminants into the process when you, uh, when you made the cell. So there's also a piece of it from a quality assurance perspective that takes time. You were saying these patients have to be tracked for the rest of their lives. Do we have any sense of what happens if something goes wrong? In the clinical trial settings, we've had some significant safety issues. They happen pretty quickly. So that tracking is often, you know, enough just in the week or two after they've been dosed with a therapy. The bigger question and what we're really interested in at Canaan and through a couple of our investments is what's happening biologically to that patient at three months, at 12 months, at two years, so that we can learn from how their immune response responded, all of the biology that happened in that body to fight the cancer can help inform better therapies for the future. So there's not just a clinical safety and efficacy piece that we're interested in. This is really fundamental to research and translational medicine as well. What about the companies themselves that will be providing this kind of therapy? Uh, How do they ramp up to treat a whole lot of patients? Well, carefully and thoughtfully, we're seeing in the early launches with the first two approved products that they're going slowly and deliberately, and they're focusing on doing this at centers of excellence, the Penns and the MD Andersons and Dana-Farbers of the world. We're really interested in the question of how do you democratize these therapies so you don't have to live near or travel to one of these centers of excellence, and also how can you improve these systems and manufacturing processes so that they are not so complex and time-intensive. We're in an era now that is not just about the biology. It's about biology and informatics and chemistry 
machine learning all coming together to drive research forward. And this field is the perfect area for those implementations and that synergy. Nina Shelson is a general partner at Canaan Partners. More information is available on the web at canaan.com. That's C-A-N-A-A-N, canaan.com. Using a person's own cells to correct or replace damaged parts of the body is not limited to the treatment of cancer. Today we'll talk about two products, FDA-approved products, which use an individual's cells. The first one smooths certain types of cartilage injuries and joints, often in the knee, and the second replaces severely burned skin. Since so many people suffer from sports-related injuries, I thought we would start with damage to the cartilage. Gerard Michel is the CFO of Vericell. Often what happens either because of uh, blunt trauma or repetitive injury, patients develop um, basically a pit. Think of it a pot, as a pothole in your cartilage. You want your cartilage to be smooth so the surfaces don't bind on each other as you're walking or running or doing sports. And these are all in your joints. Right. Load-bearing areas especially, but yes, all in your joints you have, have cartilage. Um, and that's what keeps you from, you know, without the cartilage you'll suffer, feel pain, inflammation, you'll develop osteoarthritis, um, so it's critical. And the unique thing about cartilage and cartilage injuries is that cartilage doesn't repair itself. It's one of the few tissues in the body that does not have an intrinsic repair ability. Um, there are no blood vessels in it. There are no nerves. And hence, once you have a cartilage injury, you always have a cartilage injury. And when you have a cartilage injury, you no longer have the smooth you know, weight-bearing surfaces moving um, against each other. Now you're setting yourself up for inflammation and further degeneration. But you guys have worked on something. Right. What we have is a product called Macy, uh, approved in December of 2016, launched early in 2017. Macy is um, basically your own cart chondrocytes, which are the cartilage-producing cells your body makes. We take the cartilage from you, a small piece of biopsy. We um, take out the chondrocytes, um, and we culture them in a way that they start producing cartilage again. We seed those cells on a um, collagen membrane, um, and we ship that back to the physician. And the physician simply has to make a small incision in your knee. He trims out a template to the size of the defect, it's like an arts and crafts project for him or her. And then he or she will trim the membrane to the same sh shape and simply glue it in place and uh, sew you back up. Now, over a period of months to a year, the cartilage replicates and produces, um, the, excuse me, the chondrocytes replicate and produce extracellular matrix or cartilage, and it slowly fills up the defect. There's rehab involved, obviously, but um, with appropriate rehabilitation, most patients can get back to full sports activities at least within a year and sometimes quite a bit earlier than that. How did you prove it worked? Uh, we had to run, uh, and the trials were run in Europe, we had to run controlled clinical trials, pivotal clinical trials, against what at that point was standard of care for cartilage injuries, and that is called microfracture. Uh, microfracture came into the fore over a decade ago, uh, where some physicians had the idea that if you uh, drill holes or poke holes into the bone underneath the cartilage injury and bone marrow bleeds in, that those cells will differentiate into cartilage-producing cells. And it certainly does f fill in the lesion. The problem is it does not tr form true cartilage. It forms something called fibrous cartilage 
is probably the best way to describe it. And that does not have the same load-bearing intrinsic um, characteristics as normal cartilage. And what they found that in especially larger defects, what ends up happening is that repair will degenerate over time and essentially fail, um, leading to further problems. Um, but we ran our trials against that standard of care, uh, microfracture, and we found that we had significantly better response rates for the patients. It's called a Coos pain and function scale, something that no doctor uses, but the FDA likes that scale, and so did the uh, EMA over in Europe. Um, I think probably the better way to think about it is about one out of 10 of our patients who get Macy will come back to the doctor and say, hey, doc, um, I still have pain. Nine out of 10 will say, hey, it feels good. Um, versus with microfracture, uh, within two years, about one out of three are going to come back to their doctor and say, hey, doc, I still have a lot of pain. We need to do something else. It's a much higher failure rate with microfracture. We start getting responses. The, pain, the patient usually feels better within about 36 weeks or so, and we show that this response rate lasts at least to five years is the longest we've followed a number of patients. For at least five years, they're doing better than they would have had if they had what was the old standard of care microfracture. Yeah. So when you have these types of procedures, you're um, usually you're not load-bearing for a number of weeks. It takes, you know, a good month and a half, so usually in rehab before you're totally back to normal load-bearing, you know, off crutches and such. And then you have the surgery itself. So, but when I say 36 weeks, that's about when you see the separation between microfracture and Macy in terms of improvement. And then, you know, the separation increases, and then it stays for at least five years. So you're definitely doing better off doing this versus microfracture. Now, this is for people with sort of smaller problems with their cartilage. It's for focal defects. So you have a, a pit or a hole in your cartilage. For I think what you're um, probably contrasting it to is if you have full-blown osteoarthritis, this wouldn't be for those patients. Now, you can have early osteoarthritis and get this, get this product. But when you have you know, later stage osteoarthritis, it's a diffuse dif disease, which unfortunately this isn't indicated for that. Now, Varicel is very interested in all kinds of treatments that have to do with cells, and you have another product. Right. That product is called Epicel. Um, the similarity with Macy is it is, again, cells from your own body that we expand. This is for severe burn patients, so there's really no happy story here. Um, these are all severely burned patients, full thickness burns. With the Epicel, um, we will get a biopsy from the patient, and in a little over, let's call it about two and a half weeks, we can get the cells um, the, back to the patient. Um, we grow the cells so they're confluent. It's a sheet. We put it down on a vas Vaseline gauze, um, call it membrane or carrier, um, and the doctor is able to put that onto the open wound. Um, it stays there for a while before it pulls off the Vaseline gauze and exposes a new layer of skin for the patient. So again, it's a life-saving. Um, there have been abstracts presented at, at meetings where you know, it shows a dramatic improvement in mortality by using this product versus traditional serial autographs on these very, very sick patients. A commonality between these two technologies is cells, the person's own cells, cell development, uh, the ability to move them around, to use them. Those technologies are all very new. They're now stable, and you're able to use these. Right. Actually, we, we, our company here has been doing this for over a decade. 
Um, what's new is a lot of uh, companies now are trying to genetically alter the cells. And so that's a lot about what you hear in the news. Um, that might be something that our company gets into. We're looking at it very carefully. I think that what we have is how do you routinely get cells from a patient? How do you routinely expand them, manipulate them in some ways? So we do it with media and such. Um, we're not actually changing the genes. Um, and then, you know, put them on some type of surface or carrier that's useful for the patient and then ship them back to the patient. Uh, it's a very complex procedure to do in a way that's cost effective. It's very expensive to do this. Um, you think of the quality control. Every patient is a batch of product. Usually when you make a batch of product, you're making it for 1,000, 10,000 patients with all the quality control that goes behind that. The FDA hasn't changed what they want to see for that. So one of the things we've had to learn how to do is how to be very efficient with our quality control or quality assurance because every patient has to be viewed as if it's treated. Every batch is a, is a single patient and vice versa. So it's very expensive if you don't structure yourself appropriately. So that's one of the, that's one of the magic things we've done. It doesn't sound terribly sexy from a science perspective, but it's one of the things that the CAR-T pro companies are having trouble with. The reason they charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for these patients is quite frankly, it costs them that amount of money to make a batch for the patient because every patient is a batch. Gerard Michel is the CFO of Vericell. More information is available on the web at vcell.com. That's V-C-E-L, vcell.com. Ever heard of the Blue Button Conference? Well, you better catch up. We're on Blue Button 2.0. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, in Washington, D.C., our home of all things innovative, <laughs> uh, back in the Obama administration, the Health and Human Services initiated a campaign called Blue Button, working with the VA, the Veterans Administration here in the United States, to enable veterans to kind of own and collect their data, which often was scattered between different VA hospitals and systems and medical records. And the idea about a blue button is you could literally press that kind of software blue button and download your records that you could use to improve your care. They've recently, uh, in the summer of 2018, had the Blue Button 2.0 conference, looking to expand upon that ability. And the kind of lesson, and not that the system's perfect, but the idea is that we can now hopefully connect the dots and enable you to own and blend data between different services, hospitals, medical record systems. The big news out of this conference was that some of these big, what are called tech giants, Amazon, Alphabet, which is the overarching for Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, IBM, all came together to collaborate on what's called interoperability, making it easier for patients to share medical records, especially between hospitals, not just if you're in a Veterans Administration, VA hospital. Um, that challenge interoperability is often because medical records are almost like languages, Spanish, English, French, Swahili. They have some similarities, but often you can't read them if, unless you're very schooled in them. And we need to improve our ability to download a medical record from here in the Bay Area between Stanford and UCSF to have them talk to each other. If you're on vacation in France for the health system there to be able to read your information. That's this idea of interoperability. And we're seeing new players, often consumer giants, coming into healthcare and now applying their amazing resources, talent pool, engineering resources to help connect those dots. This also plays into the problem that many of the outputs of the sophisticated advanced machines 
were never meant to be shared. They may not be on a, a network device, maybe stored on a particular internal system, any number of things. Do we have to bring in the manufacturers of the devices themselves? Well, I think many of your listeners may remember Betamax versus VHS, two different forms of <laughs> videotape. And in the end, VHS what? won. What? They say. <laughs> well, the, the, back in the day when you wanted to watch a movie, <laughs> you went to the Blockbuster and you rented a videotape. And there were two forms, VHS and Betamax, which would only fit into one form of machine. Eventually, the form factor for VHS won out. That's now pretty much defunct in our Netflix age. But similarly, you know, the way Microsoft or Salesforce or Google works with data and how they store it in their language could be quite different. So at this Blue Button 2.0 developer conference, they were starting to play together, mix it up so that it's not one tape format versus another, so that your health data could be in similar forms. There's a, a, a health platform called Fire, F-H-I-R, which is becoming more common to allow the data pipes to flow between different medical record systems, radiology, pathology, lab systems, and even onto your own smartphone and device so that doctors across systems can talk to each other and that the data, which is sort of the oil, I think, of the future of medicine can flow and be made useful. It's even tougher when you have a particular system that used an AI algorithm to analyze something, and then they're getting data from another system that didn't have that same AI capability. How do you compare them? This can be very challenging. It's very challenging, and often the individuals who collect or feel like they own that data, this idea of data silos, whether it's a medical record, a pathology record, some uh, record of your buying habits or your insurance information. It's when we connect those together and align incentives to share that, that things get super powerful. And so there's a real opportunity to unleash those silos, combine them at this convergence point and ride the exponential wave to improve healthcare. So Blue Button, while it was intended for veterans, in fact, could help everybody. We all want our own blue button. We all should be able to own our medical records. It's not owned by your hospital. It's You should be your genome. There's a hashtag, give me my damn data, started by the e-patient movement, that you should be able to own your information and then potentially opt into clinical trials. And if you want to share some of your medical data, potentially riding on technologies like blockchain, you can opt in and even be rewarded for being a data donor. But it's imperative that the information can flow, have common formats so that we're not living in a Tower of Babel, Babel, and uh, we can cross-fertilize this data across the planet. Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.